Okay, alright, good morning and welcome. It's the 22nd, 7th of February 2008. And we're looking at the Beatitudes. Um, had a funny time the last few days, head like a cauliflower. Could not get into doing anything. Um, busy on Saturday, of course. Sunday passed in a blur. Um, Monday, was it yesterday? Was it yesterday the young lady came? Young lady who's on holiday here from Australia came yesterday. It's, a lot, it's somewhat of an emergency situation. Uh, and I spent all day with her and got absolutely nowhere. I mean, it's rare that that happens. She was half an hour late at the station, so it was 12 o'clock before I picked her up. And I think Joyce took her home something after 7 o'clock last night. And we just didn't get anywhere. Um, but having said we didn't get anywhere, it was because she didn't want to face what she got that was coming up, you know. And she didn't want to go back to Australia with what was there. And so it left me with a head like a cauliflower this morning and no notes, really, to speak of for this. And I said to the Lord, I haven't done anything for tomorrow. Never mind, you'll give me fresh bread in the morning. So there I sat this morning just after seven waiting for fresh bread, which didn't come. So I said, well, I gave him multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we could do this and so. We could, uh, you know, um, we could have some feedback about what they've been doing with their books and or, or maybe I could break them into a couple of groups. So when I, I went all through all sorts of things and none of it felt right. So finally, when I'd exhausted myself, I thought, well, I'm just going to have to say I haven't got anything today, and that'll be that then. That's, that's, that's all there is to it, you know. I mean, you can't, if you haven't, you haven't, have you? There you are. And all of a sudden, I picked up this book, you know, The King and You, this one that we're, um, some of us sort of beginning to, to read, and I looked at it, and it was ignition, take off. <laughs> and so I thought... There was a lesson in just being at peace and just waiting and being absolutely, if he didn't give me anything, there was no way I was going to make something. So there was a real lesson in it. Um, uh, just in the fact of me being at peace. Because I thought, I don't actually have to keep on finding something. So when I did talk to the Lord about it, he said, a sort of a, a, again a bit more of a recap, because those of you here last week, and I will be recording last week, we had the builders in the boot room yesterday, which was a bit of fun, last week, which was a bit of fun, making lots of noises off. So it was all punctuated with lots of drilling. drilling. Uh, <laughs> so we didn't record it because of that. Next week, bit of a bit of advanced thing, on a, despite the fact that Hannah has given me... <laughs> Lovely lots of notebooks. I want to give you an opportunity to, to feedback what the book about attitudes is saying to you, if, if you want to, just for the edification of the rest of us. Uh, what I mean, you inadvertently tripped one last week. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but just, if, you, if you'd like to do that, it'd be good. And if anybody's reading The King and I, or has read that, and they've got anything they want to say about that, uh, please be prepared to make some contribution next week. Um, because I can go on stuffing it in, but when Stephen was little, I just remembered, he picked up 
um, a thrush, a baby thrush. And it was just, you know, pretty gaga. And then he found a nest and we put this nest and the thrush on the top of the fire to keep it warm. And then we decided, because every time you put your hand over it, the mouth opened like that, we'd better find some worms. So we went out and got the worms and cut them up and poked them in. Well, he kept swallowing these things until finally one day he just keeled over because nothing was coming out the other end. <laughs> it was just with kindness. <laughs> and as I was talking then I thought, it could be like that thrush. I'll keep stuffing and <laughs> stuffing and one week you'll all just go. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> nothing coming out. Nothing being processed. Nothing actually. <laughs> Oh, make myself laugh. Nothing actually um, being processed. Uh, so that probably was God's idea rather than mine, that one. It's been sitting in, in the loo for some days. I thought I'd better move that as the girls are coming. Where's that? Give my little bits of inspiration. So we uh, did a recap. We're looking at the Beatitudes, and, and, this, and from now on, I think we'll be looking at The King and You, this book and having a look and seeing where it's taking us. Um, it's a, it, that for those of you who haven't got it, it's um, an exposition on the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. Um, as It, it um, applies to us, it, it putting an application on it. So, as ever, when I start to be looking at it, I get stuck in the first few lines and I, so I don't get very far. Um, two things that I've brought down today are the, the King and You by Bob Mumford, but the other one is this one that uh, Tim, bless his heart, gave me. Dr. Frankenstein and, and World Systems, which is also by Bob Mumford. And believe it or not, uh, it's about the church. It's the way that the church has been become a Frankenstein's monster. And it's got up off the table and has begun to control us. Um, and I quote what he says, At first, as the story goes, the creature was gentle and innocent. However, because of adverse circumstances, he eventually transforms into a terror. What Dr. Frankenstein created, he couldn't control. The created persona took on a life of its own, becoming independent, uncontrollable and destructive. Uh, and what he's saying at the end of the day is that the church as, a, as an entity has become a system a system which is ruling us rather than us ruling it and we get pulled into the system and begin to serve it rather than serving the Lord who uh, is the one we should be serving it's very very interesting uh, the way he he uh, evolves this whole concept that some systems have got such a virus that they cannot be redeemed and God will close them. That is virtually what he's saying. It has become so much a control uh, that he has to close it. He's just at random he says the original Christian foundations of the caring professions are being increasingly eroded and now becoming a system so he's talking about like think how far the medical profession has eroded since 
Florence Nightingale's time. Instead of care, it's become a well-known route to wealth and prestige. He's American, so he's talking about it like that. And is in itself a powerful system. So he likens how systems rule and how actually the enemy gets to be over anything and then starts to control it. Um, it's, it's well worth looking at because, um, as I say, he's, he's actually talking about the church. Here he says, There are different types of death that happen to a system or organisation, and then he cites four. There's natural death when something lives its full cycle of life and then dies, like plants and animals and humans and buildings. Then there's warfare when war, persecution or satanic intervention or aggression causes people's lives to be cut short. There's inevitable and consequential judgment when God cuts a life short because of sin and some examples are King Herod, Ananias and Sapphira. And then there's the father's sentence of death. This corresponds with the father's will and command before the full cycle of life is complete. That which has been born of God, anointed and protected, is now sentenced to death. God has his own reasons and purposes for doing this, illustrated in the premature death of Jesus at 33 years old. Let me repeat myself. We are mistaken when we think that something once is born of God, it should live forevermore. When anything or anyone begins to take on a life of its own, apart from the intent of the Creator, it has the potential of becoming a monster and begins to rule us instead of our being able to direct it towards the intended purpose. We end up serving it rather than serving God. <clears throat> the longer it goes without Father's sentence of death, the more it begins to degenerate. This is the time when it comes closest to being demonized. Decay begins to set in rather than metamorphosis. Nothing is changing and death is everywhere. Our pet projects and beloved systems that have received a death sentence from God the Father are like a cowboy in the old western movie. Although fatally shot, he refuses to fall down and die and he staggers all over the town, <laughs> demanding attention, bleeding and traumatising everyone before he gives up. Just because God birthed the ministry doesn't mean it should live forever. When something is born of God, has been anointed and has hope for the future, God may ask us to trust him through the death sentence. If we refuse to hear him, the ministry, business or organisation begins to degenerate. When we are not sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we administer spiritual CPR. I presume that means it's like, uh, you know, shock treatment. Yeah, Adrenaline shots and electrotherapy to keep the heart beating. Continued resuscitation does not mean we are within the borders of his will. We need to learn the difference between resurrection and decomposition. <laughs> Doesn't pull his punches, does he? He says of himself, uh, don't have mum for he's a troublemaker. <laughs> he says that's because he's a kingdom man, he's not a church man. Mm. There's a total difference between being a kingdom man and a church man. If I can liken it to you, this is the sort of thing that happens with church. You know, I had a baton meeting on Saturday and someone said to me, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to come to your next baton meeting. And I thought, you're not coming just to support me, are you? Because don't. I didn't say it, but I thought it, so I prayed it. And I said, Father, if that person is just coming along, just because I'm doing something and she wants to stand with me in it, would you stop her? 
wasn't there. I won't, I won't have that. I'd rather preach to the seagulls like Roger Price <laughs> than, than to actually have people who are there because they think that they are standing with me. That is mistaken loyalty. Your loyalty is to one master and not to anyone else. So if we continue in this action, there may still be people who are helped, but there can be others who are hindered or hurt in their walk with the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about the problem of control and the golden calf. The church, our ministry, calling or title or position in an organisation has become what we worship in place of God himself. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And it is so easy. Uh, fear of the unknown. This is the problem with control. Death is the ultimate trust in the person of God. Death of anything leads to a period of decentering and uncertainty. So you will see ministries floundering and seeking. Didn't know I was going here this morning. To keep themselves on an even keel when actually God is trying to bring it, to, is, is doing an Isaac with it, and you have to raise the knife over it and bring it down with intent that you're going to kill the thing. Not that I wonder how soon it's going to be before he says I can stop, you know. So anything or anyone that has had a ministry, it's always constantly got to be offered back to him. Because otherwise it, it becomes something we try to control uh, and try to draw people around us to make it look as though it is actually still thriving and functioning when actually it isn't at all. We can make things happen and keep them going for an awful long time. We know a church where Ichabod was written over the door ten years before the f church finally actually folded and the, and, the, and the man who was in charge just went somewhere else. Um, you have to know what's going on. So the third thing that happens with control is the preservation of reputation. goes without saying. Fourth thing is the preservation of the comfort level and being undisturbed. And the fifth is the real fear of loss of control fear of people's opinions and ideas and fear of failure uh, confusion and uncertainty in who's speaking this is why the prophetic is so important um, where, where churches actually refuse to have recognized prophetic voices speaking into their midst they are actually probably on a hiding to nowhere right now um, because the, you need the prophetic to find out what God is saying I know that God is dismantling everything right now. I don't know what he's going to build, but he's dismantling. That's why when I sat before him this morning, I thought, well, if you don't want me to give anything, you don't, and that's all there is to it. I'm not going to scrape around. I know that I am in what Graham would call the ebb. You come into, it's like a tide, it goes in and it comes out. Last year I was in full flood, most of the year. Everything was easy. Suddenly the tides start to go out and I'm left with all the flotsam and the jetsam on the beach. But I know that I'm in an ebb. And Graham said the, th the thing not to do when you're in that is to try to get a fresh message. <laughs> I thought, I clock it. He said, just do not do it because God is doing something deep in you and you need to let him do it. So if I had to close everything down, that's okay. The number of times we've been closed down here is amazing. When we've been here about a year. Took us away for 21 days, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Close up. Because we'd left our first love. Went into a shop, there was a t-shirt. And I pulled it out, you know, having this poke around the second hand shops that have got first love across it. 
I thought, that's why we're down here. I've left my first, lost it, I'd left it, because the ministry had become more important to me than him. Ever so easy. The building of your reputation, your ministry, your buildings, all this stuff we've got in process, got to keep it going. It becomes Frankenstein. Gets up off the table and starts to cause havoc. So you get confusion and uncertainty. Uh, is this really Father's death sentence or do we just need to pray harder, read extra scripture and fast more? <laughs> Could God really be asking us to let this die? Fear of repeating painful lessons of the past? Once having been successful and knowing what loss is, we decide that success is preferable. Success now holds us in its grip and we will do anything to avoid a painful experience. The whole idea of death is not a popular theme in the charismatic or evangelical world. Bargaining. This is the last one. Trying to make a deal with God rather than embrace the cross. That which is self-referential within us does not die easily. You know, those of you who have been here will know that we're beginning to look at the difference between self-referential love and an agape. What you were displaying this morning was self-referential love. I don't want to get involved in that because it might cost me and hurt me. So God is, is about, at the moment with his church, showing us there is a swing that we've got to make from being self-centred and actually what's best for me and keeping our little comforts to what is best for other people and how to serve and minister to and lay our lives down for one another. That's sort of a bit makes a squeezed face, doesn't it? <laughs> As that Polish girl used to say, making a squeezed face. Because we've just gone into an eros shift in the church, into such an extent that the world comes into the church when we're born again, we, our love is no different. And so he's now, I believe, one of the things he's doing is changing this. Uh, the whole shift and showing us how he actually intends it to be it's not a condemnation it isn't that we've known what to do before this is something new he's doing and he's saying line up behind me if you want a bit it's no, like everything with God there's no there's no insistence on it but if you really want to see what it's all about you know so I spend days like I spent it yesterday with this dear one and how I knew it was God was I was peaceful. Most of the day I spent with a 13, stroppy 13 year old. We'd go through a little bit of something and then it would be, oh I'm going to give all this up, I don't, I don't, and, and, and uh, nothing ever works for me, and dum 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 dum, are all red eyes and puffy, and you know, and um, I, I'm saying, well look, just have a little lay down and I'll put some soaking music on and we'll see where we get there gets up, I feel worse, oh, <laughs> that's good, <laughs> where should we go there, then I come in here and plead with the Lord, you know what to do, <laughs> silence, so I just went through with it, um, confused, that's why I woke up with a head like a cauliflower, I think, I thought don't even try to work out what happened there, because you can't, um, so uh, what am I saying, I suppose sometimes it will be like that, you do your absolute best and you get absolutely nowhere. She probably went home feeling worse than she did when she came. But the good thing about it was that she wanted to come. Because I, I made sure to speak to her before I 
you know, is this your will? Do you want to do this? Your friend wants you to come, but do you want to come? You know? And then God is so kind because um, Joyce had not been back 10 minutes and the phone rang and it was the friend that she was staying with in this country. Mm. And she said, I don't know qu quite what I'm doing ringing you, she said, because I shouldn't be ringing you really. But And then she proceeded to tell me exactly the same behaviour that she had had with the girlie as I had experienced. So I told her what I thought my diagnosis was mm. and she said well that's exactly the conclusion I've come to so I thought father you're so kind because I'd said the, almost the last thing I said to the young lady was look go and get another opinion hopefully I'm wrong mm. <laughs> I'm not right all the time Frank. I'm, I'm, I'm wrong what I'd actually said to her was that you've got at least two little parts that need healing one's about five and one's thirteen well of course it was the thirteen year old that I'd had most to do with <laughs> I realised that this morning I thought that was a stroppy 13 year old I was dealing with most of the day yesterday you know nothing's ever right is it it's always the same for me doesn't go round and round and round <laughs> but uh, bless her she may come back because I said to her friend you know the door's open if she wants to come back she really wants to do business but of course at the end of the day what it's all about is she's absolutely terrified of facing this stuff um, and she doesn't want to lose control she came out the loo at one station and said I don't want to let go of control I thought well there you go I understand that that's okay you've 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 learned a lot today you found out what your problem is what you need to do to put it right and now you're in a decision process you, nothing much you can do until you decide you actually want to face this thing and when you do it won't be that it won't be that length of time but from this side you can't see that it won't and from this side you can't see what you'll be like without it so that seems like too big a leap yeah we've gone into ministry haven't we there anyway Um, so the last thing he says on this about uh, the, the, the whole control issue and when you've got a system or a church or whatever as I say, I don't know why I started this but knew I had to God is relational but because mo many of us carry a secret fear of him we do not make ourselves completely available to him when he is our only source of security, identity and belonging many times when ministering to others we feel adequate, loved and rewarded by them we are taking the well done from the wrong source. In God's presence, however, we don't experience that same sense of adequacy, free, freedom or comfort level. And because of this, we give ourselves to ministry and not to Him. Uh, so, it, as I say, very interesting little book. Um, Frank, Dr. Frankenstein and the World Systems. And in the beginning, he quotes... You're going to say, how has this got to do with uh, the Beatitudes? Well, the Beatitudes are all about surrender. This is quoting Oswald Chambers. The greatest enemy to the Lord Jesus Christ in the present day is the conception of practical work that has not come from the New Testament, but from the systems of the world, in which endless energy and activities are insisted upon, but no private life with God. The central thing about the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a personal relationship to himself, not public usefulness to men. Turns on its head what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. 
because if they were, you were asked anything, they would say, well, it's usefulness. You've got to do something. Jesus says, no, I'll do it all. You just be. In fact, during the course of our conversation, the young lady said, I can't do what he's called me to do. I said, you're not meant to be able to, dear. That's the whole idea of it. Only he can do it. It's the brilliance of it. Before we go any further, I'm just going to read Matthew 5, um, 1 to 16. Isn't it good? When you feel like too open to chewed string, it kicks in, doesn't it? And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, or we would have said, he said. <laughs> it's, that's Hebrew idioms. He opened his mouth and taught, or he lifted up his eyes means he looked up, you know. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, we did do a recap last week, and as I said, I will be recording that later on, hopefully, on how far we got with the Beatitudes. And put simply, they are the mind of Christ. God's stated goal is to conform us to the image of his son. That's his agenda. He doesn't have an agenda for ministry for us. He has an agenda to transform us uh, by the renewing of our minds into the image of his son. Bob Mumford's got a tape called Image and Likeness. And I thought, I want to listen to that. It's got something to do with the the conforming of us from one thing to the other. So our focus changes from a life of performance to living simply and honestly before God as much-loved children, plus nothing. All ambition is dead, all wants and desires are satisfied, and we live our lives simply to please Him. The heading of this is the King and You, incidentally. It was going to be an audience of one, but I felt the Lord saying, no, it's King and You. So Beatitudes, the Beatitudes describe life in the Spirit. And we're learning that this is all about leaning. 
This life is not something we can manage to live by ourselves. We're coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the Beloved. We've seen that when we studied the fruit of the Spirit, that love and self-control are like bookends, keeping the rest of the fruit together. We saw that self-control was the bringing of the whole self under the benevolent dictatorship of the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to live His life through us. We saw that as we become governed by God Himself, there are no longer two lives to be lived, but one. We saw that our entire lives, in every aspect, spiritual, mental or physical, need to become subject to the sovereignty of God's Spirit. We saw that we can say with the centurion soldier, I too am a man under authority. And the scripture reference for that is Matthew 8 verse 9 and Luke 7 verse 8. We saw that the running of my affairs, my attitudes, my actions need to be relinquished and turned over to God's gracious spirit who yearns jealously over us. Then we looked at attitudes and defined them as patterns of thinking developed over a number of years. Attitudes are patterns of thinking about a particular thing or situation where we consistently think the same way. And then we began reactivating our choosing mechanisms, didn't we? Our will. The whole thing is about choices. We do have a choice every moment of the day about how we will respond. We saw that we need to become responders, not reactors. If you get the chance, it's always worth weighing up as there is any eternal value in reacting about what's going on. Do I have to be right? Will it have any eternal value in being right? Or is it for the sake of peace? Is it better to just drop it? I don't have to be right. I don't have to make my point. I don't have to show the other person that that is exactly what I was trying to say. You know, it's a stepping back and choosing the line of least resistance, if you like. But it isn't an ungodly choosing in order that we don't confront issues that need confronting. It's one that will make for peace. I've found myself, since I started teaching on this, just in everyday things, just thinking, nah, not pursuing that, nah, not worth it. Not wor I know where it will go and it isn't worth it. Just not worth it. Nothing in it. So I'm learning as well with all this. And then training. We saw that we need to train ourselves in righteousness. It doesn't happen automatically. That's the sad thing. And Hebrews 12.11 says, if you want to look it up. Timothy, Timothy, Hebrews. You and James, like I am, you've gone too far. Did you say we're in Hebrews again? Please? 12, verse 11, dear. Thank you. Uh, in mine it says, Now no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous, we don't like it. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we have to allow ourselves to be trained or we don't get the fruit coming out. If there's no being trained, there's no fruit coming out. It's a training process and it's the D word. What's Graham say when 
discipline and desire get married they produce delight because you have to have the desire and then the discipline and they produce delight and the best way to train ourselves is by thoughtful combining of head and heart with the fruit of the spirit so you think about it you don't become mindless over things you take time to think about it one of my I would say I call it a problem but it isn't really a problem I can't read very far because I have to stop and think about what the person's just said so I never get to read the book if you see what I mean I, I trip over a sentence and I think hang on a minute better think about what he's saying there uh, I've never been a, a great meditator or thinker but God is changing all that so the best way to show and live out love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control is by thoughtful passion a life centred on Jesus who is our passion all behaviour needs training we all have to potty train our children don't we just watch yourself if you are prone to receive correction as criticism and thereby take offence watch your own reactions and then when you've seen it laugh at yourself gotcha caught again God will take you round the same scenario until you finally realise he wants to set you free from yourself and your misery about yourself you are not how you see yourself beloved you are how he sees you he sees what you're becoming not what you were or what you are now God is always prophetic about you I always say it's like making an apple pie you've got the apples, the flour, the sugar, the cloves or whatever you're going to put in it the fat, you're going to make this pie and you see the finished thing because that's where you're heading for well God's got all the raw materials and he sees the finished pie but we're bits of this and bits of that and can't see it but he sees the finished item and he knows what he's working towards and there's always a better way to live undisciplined will revert will go to our default to how we normally react so we are training ourselves to be responders not reactors so we've been putting disciplines in place we've been having short accounts we've been making sure we've been thankful and we have been developing an attitude of gratitude haven't we don't know why I looked at you <laughs> practicing reviews of our behavior good job you can't see who I'm looking at looking closely with the Holy Spirit at, at how we could have done it differently the result is that we produce and we produce fruit not sour grapes <laughs> then we looked at the attitudes of complaining and criticism and we saw that was a distinction to be made Complaining relates to situations and criticism relates to people. Our negative thinking that relates to people is called criticism. We noticed that there were two types of criticism, destructive and constructing. constructive. The destructive type is based on our perception. When we think about the perceived faults of someone with no view to their best interests, sort of why don't they do things the way I do why can't they be more careful can't they see we are dwelling on the perceived faults of another with no view to their good 
if we were thinking these things with a view to correcting what we perceived as wrong, that is like teaching them how to do something, that would be constructive, not destructive, if they would allow it. We saw that we needed to make the distinction. Complaining relates to situations and criticism relates to people. And in our little book that we're having a look at that some of us are going to review next week, Lord Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late, he takes as his text, really, uh, the one in numbers where the people murmured and complained. All the while, murmuring and complaining. If they weren't murmuring and complaining about having no water or no food, they were complaining about Moses marrying the wrong woman as far as they were concerned. And so <laughs> everything they had an opinion on, and it was negative. Uh, so you get the two there, complaining relating to people and, and situations. And then we asked ourselves some questions last week. The first one was, am I a critical person? And the second one, am I reaping the consequences in my relationship with God and others? And the third one, am I willing to change my mind and heart? And then we began to examine the difference, I'm just bringing you up to speed really over where we've gone, between Eros love and Agape love, and we'll come back to this at a later stage. The only attitude big enough to replace a critical one is an attitude of love, and that is not your natural affection. You ca that won't cut it. Sooner or later, people will get right up your nose, and you will find you are not able in your natural self to do it. It is God's love working through you that is the only thing that will do it. So how do we do that? Our lives can become quite simplified if we will abandon ourselves to the present moment in God. It does take discipline and practice, but that's why we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. As I said that today and for several days I was floundering about what the Lord wanted actually for these meetings, and I knew enough to just wait until he revealed his will. And suddenly this morning I kicked into the concept of the King and the Kingdom and I was off and running. But while I was waiting, there was a discipline going on. Worship, waiting, not rushing off to fill the gap, waiting till he spoke, not bothered, under no pressure, just seeking his face. As we admit that without him we can do absolutely nothing, we, that's of, of kingdom um, virtue and uh, worth, we place ourselves in alignment with God's view which he expressed it in Jesus' uh, quote or words in John 15, 5. Mm -hmm. Many of you know this is what God spoke to me um, when I was a young Christian, the last sentence, and it just went through me like a, an arrow. Uh, that what he said to me was, without me you can do nothing. I was working at Bexley, I was just reaching, I can remember it now, reaching across to the windowsill to get my diary, and in an audible verse I heard, without me you can do nothing. And I thought, ha, what's that mean? I've been learning ever since. So he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, 
you can do a little bit? No, nothing. In other words, unless I'm your source and the life force that is flowing through you is my life, it'll have absolutely no effect on anything. So you end up uh, at the beamer seat of Christ with two huge bales of straw uh, which will be placed on the fire and it will go so it just causes you to consider what it is you're doing and whether there's any t eternal value in it because he wants to give you a reward anybody not sure about eternal rewards here no hands going up it's alright then so we abandon ourselves to his lordship he didn't mean that you can't live your life he meant that without my life being expressed through your life you can do nothing of lasting value nothing that will affect eternity because I'm your source I'm your wellspring I am the Alpha and the Omega stay connected to me and you will bear fruit of lasting value disconnected from me you will bear nothing I mean, you might as well slice a branch off that apple tree and then say to it, right, now let's see what you're going to bear this year. Won't bear a thing, will it? If it's got apples on it, it'll, they'll just wither. So he, he, he likens it to something living so that you can see. So we're learning to lean. We're learning what it means to belong to a different kingdom with completely different values and be subject to a king who is totally other than the kingdom of darkness we're in a process we've been got we've been had and we can't get away it's lovely so the gospel then is about the kingdom Jesus says the kingdom it's about me and that causes us a rethink if we thought it was about us eyes off self onto him so here we are this week looking at the king and his kingdom the king and you as this book's called very very good so some of you will either have read or are reading the king and you and he makes the point towards the end of the book uh, if you want to go your own way don't call me lord <laughs> that's a paraphrase of, of mark uh, 9 38 to 40 might be worth having a look at it You know, something, I mean, it's so obvious, I, sh I should have understood it and saw it, but I didn't. Mark. Nin. On Saturday, you know, when uh, um, I called people up, but if they were living the wrong side of the cross, uh, to, um, to, to literally, prophetically go the other side of the cross, and I would pray over them, and I had my little prayer in my left hand. God said to me, raise your right hand and sway, swing it across the, all of the people. So I just, as I was praying, I just did that. Didn't think anything about it because he'd said do it, so I did it. I was reading some notes yesterday of David Hillsley's about the Gospel of Mark. And he was saying that when Moses stretched out his hand or when God tells you to stretch out your hand it is releasing the power of God and that's why you do it I just sat there absolutely gobsmacked that that was the reason that I'd had to do that 
I know that he said before to me, and uh, one or two occasions, there was one classic. I was talking to someone. I was standing in the doorway of the bedroom, the guest bedroom upstairs, and she was standing by one of the single beds, and the Lord said, just lift your right hand. And I just went like that, and she fell over. <laughs> oh, my word. And, I, and she said, what was that all about? I don't know. God just said, lift your right hand, and I did. <laughs> So I should have understood then that he was saying, like with Moses and his stick, you know, throw it down. Or stretch out your hand. Joyce had the concept of it. I hadn't. She said, well, he used to say, stretch out your hand. And I'm saying, yeah, but it never clicked. What did Jesus say to the man with the withered hand? Stretch out your hand, because the power of God was going to come to heal it. Just amazing. I thought, all you have to be is obedient, isn't it? I knew that the Lord wanted to do something significant on Saturday and that those people who came forward, he would do something though they wouldn't realise it. But I had no idea that this movement had anything to do with it. But I knew I had to encompass everybody, like, you know, to make sure it went down on that side so that everyone got a bit. But um, he's just amazing, isn't he? Mark nine thirty-eight to 40 then. Um... Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who doesn't follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. Jesus said, Don't forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to... I've got the right scripture, haven't I? Mark nine thirty eight to forty, no, no. The one I wanted was if you go your own way, don't call me Lord. No, it's not the one. It's the one that says. It's, it's the one that says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord. Sorry about that. I've picked it up from here, unless I've mistyped it. Anyway, the one I wanted was, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord. And he says, if you want to go your own way, don't call me Lord. That was what uh, Bob Mumford said. Let me just have a look. I'm sure he gave that. So the scripture is actually Luke 6, 46. And uh, Bob Mumford paraphrases it by saying, if you want to go your own way, don't call me Lord. Uh, but he begins by laying out the difference between church and kingdom. <clears throat> Jesus' view crosses many people's ideas of being saved to serve. We would call it some were called, some were sent, and some just got up and went. And it's the got up and went brigade to whom the remarks are addressed. Many Christians are miserable because they've been taught to be selfish. This is particularly true of the charismatic movement because when I came in it was all about my gifts, my ministry and then when we moved into renewal it was focused on me getting my needs met and so it goes on. It's like we, we haven't moved. We're self-centred enough without having it reinforced by the church. So as we begin to grasp the concept of kingdom we realise this can't continue. There is a different way of living and a different way of loving which I think is what is the subtitle of uh, the authority and leadership in the church one.
Jesus isn't interested in us doing his work, but in him directing his work through us. He really doesn't need our good ideas, as I proved this morning when I ran a few of mine by him. You know, could we do this and we perhaps could do that, or we could do the other. Absolute silence. Let me run out of all my good ideas, and then he told me what we were going to do. He wants us to do the works that he has prepared in advance for us to do, and that's Ephesians 2.10, the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. And he wants us to do what he wants when he wants us to do it. He wants to be king in our lives and to rule and reign on the inside so that our lives are an expression of his indwelling. And that's where we started off this morning, Matthew 5:13 to 16 We are light and we are salt. I know my view when I first came into Christianity via a Baptist church and that was the whole thrust that uh, you were saved to serve and I said it for many years because that was what I'd picked up. You saved to serve and you saved to serve the church. But Jesus says something else. He says don't call me Lord Lord when you haven't done the things I said. Maybe polishing pews for the week wasn't what he meant. The problem for many of us is that when we begin to say, I can't polish the pews next week, (laughs) we find ourselves on the wrong side of the leaders. Their concept is that you are here to serve the church, not Jesus. And uh, those of you who are reading the book, Lord Change My Attitude, will see, as I said before, um, uh, excuse me, I've just seen a typing error before I send the notes out. Um, right at the end I found it again last night there is an inference uh, that the church is over the family and it's this shepherding thing that, that comes through at it and he actually says if you've got problems in your family then you refer to the higher authority which is the church so he's got it God, church, family in that order and it isn't it's God, family, church uh, and that is Again, it's a shepherding movement. So Joyce said most people would read over it. Yeah, you probably would, but it's a good thing to see it. So you can see where the bias is that people are coming from. It doesn't, um, doesn't gainsay the rest of the book, which is brilliant. But the fact is, he's one of those that feel that you need to be accountable to the leadership. Accountability goes this way. It's a, it's a horizontal thing, it's not a top down. Because when the leaders talk about accountability, they are saying, you can't do what I am not aware of you doing and I want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's not accountability, that is control. Accountability is when I say to Jane, Jane, if you catch me swearing, I'll give you full permission to say to me, that is not an example to the flock that you are supposed to be. That is accountability in action. That's why I say to you, you come and you tell me. Because I want to be accountable. That is accountability. Um, I mean, I I fought this one right the way through my Christian walk until I suddenly discovered, by God's grace, what it actually meant. And now I know I'm on firm ground. It's like covering. I found out what that means as well. And it doesn't mean what the church says again that, that uh, you have to be covered by someone uh, and this they, they make this over male and female but it, what it is is a distortion 
of the story in Ruth, where Ruth went to Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. My kinsman redeemer is Jesus, so therefore he is my covering. He's the one who is closest to you, who looks after you. So if you have a husband, he is the one that is, is your cover as a woman. He's to look after you, preserve you, protect you, look up, you know, um, provide for you. But the distortion that has come in because of the control is actually, who's your covering? You need to be in under someone. In other words, you can't be trusted. You need to be, so I can find out what you're doing. To do that, they'd have to follow me around 24-7. Because otherwise, how are they going to know what I'm doing? Can't I cast out a demon until I get your permission then? You know, you can imagine, can't you? They have a cure mile long or wait until I got the permission of the church to cast a demon out. Anyway, it shows if it's taken to, to the nth degree how ridiculous it is. And if you draw out control or anything like that to the nth degree, you won't find God at the end of it. You'll find Satan because it's a, it's, a, it's a domination thing and a control thing. So if you pull everything to its furthest extreme, is it God or is it Satan? Is it the world or is it the kingdom? And that way you can find out where it's coming from, what its root is. It can sound all very nice, but it hasn't actually got concern for you and the people you're looking after. Actually, what it is, is I want to know what you're doing. don't trust you. Mm. That's, that's the bottom of it. That's fine. I've, I've no... don't want it to sound as if I've any rancor about it, because I haven't. I've just, God's just been showing me these things. I asked him, and because I asked him, he showed me. I thought, well, that's a relief. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know why. Because I couldn't see anywhere in the New Testament about being covered. Anywhere. Because I can't, because it's the Old Testament. That's why. So. As I said earlier on, because of the way we view church, it's become something we serve, rather than it serving us. And it's got off the table like Frankenstein's monster. But we uh, did that one to death earlier on. So when the church collapses, we tend to think the kingdom has collapsed. And if we've had our view and our eyes on church and on church leaders, then the whole of our Christian walk can be severely shaken because we've been looking at the wrong thing. They have caused us to focus on them as being the place of security and not on Jesus himself. And it's like in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Sometimes the King Uzziahs have to be moved out of the way for us to see the Lord high and lifted up. He will not have anybody in between you. The first time I found out that, the, that a vicar is a vicarious, I nearly did a vertical takeoff. There is one vicarious, and that is Jesus. He was the sacrifice in place of me being done over. For any man to call himself a vicar is totally wrong. But it's just part of the... Roman Catholicism that has come down the Anglican Church till it's all done by this one man in his surplus up the front um, it's not fair on him and it's not fair on the congregation it's just not what church is all about so when the church collapses we tend to think the kingdom has collapsed but it's not the case the kingdom is eternal and it is unshakable it's constant and it's continual 
because the reign and the rule of the king is constant and continual and eternal. So once we accept the rule of the king, we are on a journey allowing him to change our character to reflect the character of Jesus. And getting to this place is not a passive thing. It will require our total attention and many choices along the way. It's a goal setting. Remember the two pathways that we had uh, end of last year? And that gave us a definite choice and they were diagonally opposed to each other. Some of us are living in the result of making the choices right now. That is what I want. Oswald Chambers quotes, I think it's an old hymn, and he says, My goal is God himself, by any road, dear Lord, at any cost. It's vigorous. We have to put ourselves at it and maintain ourselves in that position. Totally focused on the Father, we become father-pleasers rather than people-pleasers. People-pleasing is a killer because you never can. There's always someone out there who will be out with you, no matter how hard you try to please them. I heard a, um, a story once, I think it was a sermon, this lady had gone home from a church meeting and she threw herself on the floor and she said, Lord, when I get A and B to agree, A and C are out of sorts. And if I get A and C agreeing, then B's out of sorts. I can't get it together. <laughs> and the Lord said, I never intended that you should. So trying to get people pleased is a highway to nowhere. It's everything for an audience of one. Just like Jesus, who only ever did what he saw the Father doing. So we're learning to live as much loved children of the King of Kings, entering into the fullness of what he won on the cross. I tell you, when you come into that, there is freedom. Because you don't have to bang your drum. You just have to be who you are and let him be who he is. He's always saying to me, you be you and I'll be me and that'll be enough. Brilliant. So in the course of this, we begin to operate in agape rather than eros to understand the difference between the two so that we get to choose. We become those who live according to kingdom principles, not the principles of this world. We love with the love of the Father, not the Eros or the common love, the world's way of loving. As we make way for the Holy Spirit within us, our lives are laid down in favour of his life within us and through us. As we change and grow, never static, always moving, we become a river, not a lake or a pond. Ponds have a tendency to grow stagnant, rivers flow. The promise is that out of our belly will flow rivers of living water, not stagnant water. We have rivers because the same river won't do for everyone. We have a river that will touch each individual person with whom we come into contact. Jesus met people as individuals. He didn't have like a little gingerbread man cutter. You'll find as you go on the diversity in God's children, you have to have rivers. Because how I would be with June is not how I could be with Anne or how I could be with Ruth or Jane. Because there's a special river within me that will flow out towards... What I've got to do is to tap into that river 
and let it flow out towards you. So we've got rivers that will touch each individual person that we come into contact with. Jesus met people as individuals. His approach to each one was different. So we find that we have the power and ability to touch and affect the lives which touch ours. As we go on, we'll find that inside us we've got both still and sparkling water from which we can drink. The purpose of all this is that we become mature, stable believers, not tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but stable and mature, bringing others along and reproducing after our kind. You do realise, don't you, that every seed reproduces after its own kind? If you are content with being a shallow, carnal believer, that's what you will reproduce in others. You cannot ever take anyone further than you've gone yourself. That's why I constantly push you further and deeper into God while I still have the time. So till the Lord comes, you can expect to be shoved every week. Like the change in us, rivers start as a trickle and increase in size as the water from the land drains into them. We have the capacity to be enlarged and we need to, to have that capacity. That means we need to be flexible wineskins that can hold the new wine, not hard, resistant wineskins that will burst if the new wine is poured in just going to give you a, a question here and a moment for you to ask the Lord am I a flexible wineskin or am I hard and resistant even as I'm speaking some of you will know what you are change is on the way you get to choose ask him today and when you've asked take him for the solution because he will do it. Trust him to work in you both to will and to do. So your question is, am I flexible or am I hard and resistant? I think I'll stop there. Let you have a little few minutes to uh, do that.